0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. 300 years ago, timber and turtles were key commodities for English settlers on Barbados and Jamaica. Barbadians sailed northwest to the island of St. Lucia, where they harvested timber, while Jamaicans headed to the Cayman Islands to take turtles in astounding numbers. Why do they seek these resources hundreds of miles away from their home islands? And what does it have to tell us about how settlers adapted to the environment in the early modern Caribbean? On today's episode, Dr. Mary Draper joins me via Skype to flesh out how timber and turtles became central to Barbadian and Jamaican society in the colonial era. Draper is an assistant professor of history at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls, Texas, and an expert on the environmental history of the colonial Caribbean. Now, before we begin, we just want to welcome listeners new and old. We hope you are well wherever you are right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're working hard to bring you new episodes each week despite the state of things, And we hope you are enjoying the program with friends and family from a social distance. And with that, let's go timbering and turtling in the Caribbean with Mary Draper. Uh, Well, Mary Draper, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. I have to say you are the first person uh, with whom I've recorded on our new mobile equipment that we did purchase before all of this COVID stuff went down. Um, but you are the uh, you were the first distance uh, conversationalist I've had here on the podcast. So welcome and thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jim. I'm happy to be here.
0: So before we get into talking timbering and turtles, can you give us a sense of uh, what life is like down there for you? Now, you're at Midwestern State University, and people's th- first thought might be that you are in Iowa or Minnesota or someplace like that. But um, can you tell us where Midwestern State University actually is?
1: Sure. So Midwestern State University is in North Texas, about 10 miles south of the Oklahoma border. So not in the Panhandle, more like an hour and a half northwest of Fort Worth. And today is the first day that we are starting online teaching. Uh, We had an extended spring break and um, today is, is go day. So this is the new normal for the time being
0: and how do you find your students are adapting i know no it's the first day but i'm sure they've been sort of thinking about this since they got the initial emails that you'd be switching to online learning
1: um I think they're a little nervous. I think that, I mean, as we all are, it's a bit of an uncertain time period, but I, I think it's going to go well. Um, I have three different courses that I am teaching, and I've uh, taken a different approach to all of them for online learning. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how how it works out. And I look forward to continuing learning online, and I'm glad I, I just get the opportunity to keep on with the semester, even if it's not going to be face-to-face.
0: So what are you teaching this semester?
1: I am teaching Revolutionary America. Uh, I'm also teaching the first half of the U.S. History Survey to 1865. And then I'm teaching a required history class for our majors here at Midwestern State called the Writing of History, where they all get to work on a research project of their own choosing.
0: Oh, that's the best.
1: Yes, we have a very wide range of research projects. There are people writing about the NBA, women in Nazi Germany, a motherhood in colonial America. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how these projects shape up over the next few weeks.
0: So can you give us a sense of how you as a professor have prepared to teach online and transition to online learning? We've at, at Mount Vernon have been working the last few weeks to help students, teachers, and scholars you know, continue their work in a digital environment uh, while they are on this kind of weird furlough uh, for the foreseeable future. And so can you give us a sense of um, what you've been doing and do you have any particular tips that you think might be helpful for for professors or teachers who are facing similar situations?
1: Um, I, I don't have any tips at the moment. Um, maybe in a week or so I will, but my approach has been that I, I was never teaching online class. I've never taught an online class before, and I did not envision the courses that I am teaching this semester as online courses. And so, um, just being patient and flexible and trying to envision how, um, to adapt those courses to meet the the schedules and the needs of my students. So um, I'm trying to make it that things or make those courses as streamlined as possible. So I made everything due at 1159 on Friday in every single one of my classes, right? So that my students don't have to keep track of different deadlines while they're also managing their home lives or working um, jobs at this moment as well.
0: Well, that sounds great. And we certainly wish you the best of luck and, let us know if we can be useful in any particular way.
1: I have been assigning podcasts for some of my students, so they will be listening to podcasts in addition to watching my video lectures or listening to my narrated Google Slides.
0: You know, well, what what podcasts are you finding helpful? I mean, of course, you don't have to say this one, but but uh, I'm just curious for my own sense of how people are using podcasts in the classroom these days.
1: Ben Franklin's world for the various kind of topics that I'm covering in Revolutionary America.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, Liz does an excellent job of really packaging her podcast and making them really useful for the classroom. All right, Mary, so let's talk a little bit about your work as a historian, your professional interests. We haven't had a whole lot of Caribbeanists on the show in the last few weeks. Um, I'm not sure if we've had any Caribbeanists on the show ever. So you might be the first. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're interested in?
1: Sure. So I am writing an environmental history of the coastal Caribbean. I'm very interested in the ways in which people who lived and labored in the British Caribbean related to maritime spaces and these kind of unique liminal spaces that uh, coastlines created. And so I'm interested in how they adapted to those spaces, spaces that are ostensibly very, very different from what they might find on the coast of England, right? They have um, incredible humidity. They have very corrosive waves. Um, There's a whole set of wind patterns that they're going to have to learn to be able to navigate that maritime space. And there's a whole host of different foods and animals and plants that they are going to need to figure out how to integrate into their daily, daily lives in order to continue living and surviving in a region that is normally really volatile for both human bodies and kind of colonial projects.
0: So what are the, some of the major questions that historians ask about the early modern Caribbean? What are they what are the, sort of the big debates that take place in this field?
1: One of the really big debates is all about adaptation, right? How did people adapt to this new environment? And for a long time the prevailing historiographical trend was that European bodies were not particularly well adapted, right? They continued wearing wool in this incredibly humid and hot environment. And more recent scholarship by a lot of different historians is working to amend that view and show that, in fact, um, one of the reasons why this region was so profitable for the British Empire was because colonists were able to adapt. Um, And another big theme that relates to that is kind of the prevalence of absenteeism, which is also why people have deemed this a a region that wasn't particularly, um, that colonists weren't able to adapt to. Uh, Absenteeism was prevalent throughout the Caribbean, and it depend the rate of absenteeism depended upon the island. Uh, But colonists would arrive there and earn enough money that they could then go back to England and live in the comfort of English society, as opposed to in a region with African uh, supermajorities and yearly hurricanes. So um, the, the rate of absenteeism has made it seem like that region is this failed settler society. And historians are, or many historians are working to correct that characterization.
0: So is this a, a function of the fact that people are, as you say, paying attention to the, these absentee landlords, folks who are living in London, what we often call the metropole or the metropolis, or perhaps living in Glasgow later in the 18th century. And so they're focusing on what those folks are doing and how they're extracting wealth from the the islands instead of looking at the actual populations of the islands themselves and how they're adapting to their environments.
1: Absolutely. And um, part of my research is trying to figure out who is actually living in those islands and what are they doing, right? How are they providing for the resident population? both enslaved and free of that island? What activities are they doing to support and sustain that population?
0: So can you give us a sense of what we miss by not thinking about or considering the Caribbean an integral part of the imperial enterprise in North America, in the Atlantic world in the 18th century? I mean, you and I are both early Americanists. We, you know, we both know quite well how significant the Caribbean is. everything that's going on. But, you know, when we perhaps read a typical book uh, about the American Revolution or 18th century America, uh, particularly a, a popular history, the Caribbean often gets lost in that narrative. And so what are we missing by not thinking about the Caribbean as a central part of this story?
1: we're missing the vastness of early America and just how connected and integrated all of the colonies were to one another. Right on the eve of the American Revolution, there were 26 British colonies, but only 13 of them rebelled. And to the British impo- or imperial officials in London, the Caribbean was hands down the most important region of their American empire, right? Sugar was incredibly profitable to those people. And the Economies of the continental colonies, right? The colonies we think of as of the of as the thirteen colonies, were very much connected to the economies of the Caribbean. And people who lived in colonial America would continually move around. Like George Washington himself, he goes to Barbados in 1751, thinking that Lawrence, his um, his half brother, would be able to um, recover there from a sickness that he had been suffering from. And so, we, in order in order to get a better picture of what colonial America was like, right, and where people were going and what they were consuming, it's really important that we think of colonial America as not just the 13 colonies, but the 26 colonies.
0: And it, would I be right in saying that the mainland is actually a pretty important place for where Caribbean colonists are getting foodstuffs and other resources they can't necessarily get on their islands?
1: Absolutely. The mainland, the those 13 colonies are one of the most important hinterlands, if not the most important hinterland for the Caribbean colonies. They are acquiring salted fish. They are acquiring lumber from them. um, And they're acquiring all sorts of foodstuffs to make sure that they can continue sustaining their populations.
0: So you just used the word hinterland, and I'd like to to pick up on that for a second. Can you give us a, a kind of a definition of what a hinterland is?
1: So a hinterland in its most... Traditional definition is a region that surrounds a city, and that region provides foodstuffs and raw materials and goods to the city dwellers so that they can survive. I tend to think about it in a broader sense and think about how the continental colonies were providing foodstuffs and raw materials to the Caribbean. You can also think about it in the opposite way. The Caribbean was providing sugar to the continental colonies. So it's really just this economic relationship that exists between a city and a region or two regions that enable those places to survive and sustain population.
0: Oh, that makes sense. And so you talk quite a bit about a hinterland in an article you published uh, just a couple of years ago called Timbering and Turtling, the Maritime Hinterlands of Early Modern British Caribbean Cities. And for folks out there, this was published in uh, 2017 in Early American Studies. One of the other terms that you use in that article is this idea of an Atlantic Commons. And so can you kind of break that down for us? Because, um, you know, folks might be familiar with the term commons as in, you know, the common land in England or New England uh, in which you know, various other uh, kinds of shared economic activities are going on, but can you apply that in, into a um, a waterscape or an, an, an Atlantic context?
1: Sure. So the phrase Atlantic Commons is um, a phrase that is often used by the historian Michael Jarvis, who wrote a fantastic book about Bermuda in the 17th and 18th centuries. And It describes these areas of the Atlantic world where um, colonists and other European residents really engaged in all sorts of vernacular industries. They might salvage shipwrecks, they might rake salt, they might timber forests that they find. Um, And so I try and reconceive of this idea of Atlantic Commons as as a maritime hinterland, right? There are these sparsely settled islands that are accessible via waterscapes that Caribbean colonists go to in order to supplement their imports and compensate for the ecological limitations of their own islands.
0: So they're actively seeking resources beyond the boundaries or the immediate... uh immediate waterscapes around their islands to sort of subsidize whatever they may be lacking on their home islands.
1: Absolutely. And so this is where that idea about adaptation and trying and learning about the Caribbean environment comes into play, right? They have to learn what islands are accessible, which ones are they able to sail to with relative ease. Wind is a really big factor here because in the, a seascape like the Caribbean, it's really easy to sail one direction and difficult to sail the opposite Direction, And so trying to figure out how their island fits into this waterscape of of islands that are contested, that are inhabited, that might have rival imperial powers living on them, um, and how they can take advantage of those islands to help their own imperial project to succeed is really what this idea of maritime hinterlands is about.
0: And this isn't just for subsistence, right? This is actually creating an economy, uh, both local and transatlantic in scope.
1: Yes. It's largely subsistence in the article that I am talking or that I wrote about timbering and turtling. Um, it's very much a way of enabling the population to thrive and the sugar industry to succeed. Uh, but as more, um, It does be, it does have some transatlantic elements to it, um, especially in terms of turtling, uh, turtles are a food staple within the Caribbean, but they do gradually become this delicacy across the Atlantic ocean. Um, that being said, it's really difficult to transport a turtle across the Atlantic ocean. And so they do remain largely this, um, this mainstay of an Anglo-Caribbean diet.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So then, let's turn then to the two islands that you focus on in the article: Barbados and Jamaica. Why do you? Why did you choose to focus on those two places?
1: I this the the origins of this article are interesting. I was in the archive, and I was in the National Archives in London, and going through the the, the colonial office files, Barbados and Jamaica. And I was originally just going through the Barbados files, and I kept finding references to Saint Lucia, which is Um, an island just west of Barbados. And reference and reference and reference to St. Lucia kept dotting all of these letters that colonial officials in Barbados were writing back to London. And so I gradually pieced together this story of Barbadians desperately needing timber and trying to go out and essentially lay claim to St. Lucia, which was a at the time populated by indigenous people and also claimed by France. And so I had that story come out of the archive. And a few days later, I was going through the Jamaica files and I kept seeing reference after reference after reference to the Cayman Islands. And so then I had a similar story there, but instead of timber, it was turtle. And so this, this article, right, and focusing on these two islands very much uh, it came out of me just going through the archives. And I'm actually expanding this article to talk a little bit about the Leeward Islands and how people start traversing sea lanes there to find water in other places. So all throughout the Caribbean, right, there are these colonists that are living in these islands and desperately trying to find resources beyond the boundaries of their own islands by plying these waterscapes.
0: So let's let's take each of these in turn. And actually, that's a, a really good, uh, this is a really good example of I guess you might say a happy accident in the archives where you just start to notice something and then keep pulling the threads and then you've got something quite fantastic at the end um but let's take each of the islands in turn you know Barbados uh Barbadians are searching for timber and Saint Lucia and so let's let's go back to the moment of European settlement at Barbados when those early settlers would have arrived. what would have the landscape looked like at Barbados?
1: So Barbados um, is a relatively small island. It's 14 miles long and 21 miles wide. And the island would have, when the colonists first arrived, been full of trees, but colonists began clearing these tracts of trees for to transform them into agricultural land shortly after they arrived in the late 1620s. And initially, they would timber these areas that were very much confined to where settlement was, which was the leeward side of the island. Um, and forests remained in the island for quite some time. But once sugar was introduced in um, the 1650s, all of a sudden there was this insatiable demand for agricultural land and people started denuding the island with more um, speed than they had in the past. And so um, sugar monoculture, right, combined with an increase in population is going to lead to a transformation of the Barbadian landscape from this tree-filled island to an island that was very much full of Not treeless, but there aren't that many trees remaining Um, agricultural
0: fields meant for sugar production. So then they turn to St. Lucia to find more timber to feed the fires for the sugar pots.
1: Exactly. And you need timber for lots of things, right? Not even just to run the sugar industry, but if you're going to like boil water, right? clean things, make fences, right? Timber is something we take for granted now in the 21st century, but was really crucial to life in the 17th, 18th century. Um, because fire is going to be incredibly important for so many different daily
0: activities. So who's actually doing the timbering? Is it enslaved labor? Is it indentured servants? Is it free white people?
1: All of the above. So. Uh, To find this out, I went through and looked at the records um, of incoming outgoing vessels in Barbados, and you can see where they go and what they bring back and who owns the vessel and things like that. And then I also have some sources that talk about about people um, interacting with indigenous people living in St. Lucia or French colonists that are trying to claim St. Lucia. And um, it seemed this industry was largely run by kind of a a middling free white population and they would bring with them the enslaved Africans they owned to help timber that, um, that distant Island. Um, and then they would bring that timber back to Bridgetown, Barbados, which was the main port in Barbados and sell it to colonists there.
0: And how long does it take to get to St. Lucia uh, going out and then coming back?
1: Um, it, it's easier to get to St. Lucia than it is to come back. Um, it takes less than a day to sail from Bridgetown to St. Lucia, but the return trip is a little more difficult. It could take, um, four to six days to sail the opposite direction, right? That's where this wind, the wind patterns I was talking about earlier come into play and really dictate where you can sail with ease in this region.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Um, So yeah, that's a concrete example of how the winds are playing a huge factor in how this whole local economy works. So one of the things Mm -hmm. you talk about is how Barbadians see St. Lucia as a dependency. What exactly does that mean?
1: Sure. That's the phrase that they are using over and over again. You know, like, And two people living in Barbados, two colonial officials that are living in Barbados, this idea of a dependency has a a legal definition that is very imperial in nature, right? They believe that St. Lucia is their own. Um, to borrow a phrase that Justin Roberts uses, right, it's, a, it's part of greater Barbados. Mm. Um, and so they believe that they can lay claim to that island and they have exclusive rights to that island, despite the fact that there are other people living there. Right. They are willing to go out and defend their claim to that island. And at one point, the colonists in, Saint, or in Barbados actually attempt to purchase St. Lucia from the indigenous population that lives there. Um, I didn't find the original treaty in the archive, but I did find a copy of the treaty. Um, And so they're trying to at least have some type of paper trail that proves that they do in fact claim St. Lucia, despite the fact that there are other powers that are settling it and laying claim to it as well.
0: So I imagine the French are probably one of those other powers who are trying to settle it. Is that is that right?
1: Yes, and French Martinique is the next-door neighbor of St. Lucia, and it, it's only about 20 miles apart, or they're only about 20 miles apart from one another, and so it only takes a few hours to sail to and from Martinique um, in, when you're trying to get to St. Lucia. So this is going to provide or result in um, some problems for the British colonists that are attempting to claim this island for themselves.
0: Well, one of the things I learned from your article is that both sides try to establish permanent settlements on St. Lucia, but it, it doesn't go well for anybody. What's what's the reasoning why they are not able to succeed in that endeavor?
1: So I think it was more of a power grab, right? An attempt to stop the opposite imperial power from actually laying claim to the land than a true attempt at settlement. Um so they're very much attempting to make sure that within this imperial waterscape and this imperial landscape that is the Caribbean that their rival enemies aren't able to add more colonies to their empire and become more profitable in the near future.
0: And so what role does disease play in shaping the competition for this island?
1: So disease ends up wreaking havoc on the English or the attempted English settlement. Um, so the English are going to arrive in June of 1664, um, and attempt to settle the Island. But like I said, it's more of a power grab than a real attempted settlement. And in less than three months after the English arrived, 600 colonists have died. So, um, Within two years of that attempted settlement, there are only 89 Englishmen that are living on the island. And so they're going to abandon this effort and return to Barbados, but keep on using St. Lucia as an integral part of their maritime hinterland.
0: So in some ways, it was those are like Jamestown-like numbers where they tried initial settlement and they just get wiped out by disease and, and various other things. But in this case... Instead of pressing forward, they are content to use it as an extractive island to get more timber, to fire the sugar pots, or build whatever they need to on the island of Barbados.
1: Absolutely. And you can think about this, too, as fitting into these um, early modern legal ideas of um, of imperial claim.
0: So let's turn to Jamaica. Jamaica is the great prize of, of the Cromwellian conquest of the Caribbean in the 1650s. It becomes one of the most significant islands to the English and later British Atlantic economy. But the way that you write about Jamaica and particularly its major port, Port Royal, they almost seem like two different worlds. And so can you give me and give our listeners a sense of what this landscape looks like?
1: Sure. Jamaica is the largest Sugar Island in the British Caribbean. It is much larger than Barbados. It is larger than Antigua, and it also is incredibly mountainous. If you've never been to Jamaica, um, you you probably have this idea in your mind that it's like a flat, kind of idyllic, paradisical island. And if I remember correctly, the lo- tallest mountains in Jamaica are something like eight thousand feet tall. So it's a um, a mountainous interior. Um, and then it's shaped kind of like an oval, right? But you have this mountainous interior and then these kind of flat plains on the kind of coastal regions of the island.
0: And so what does Port Royal look like?
1: So Port Royal is the main port of Jamaica, really up until it is destroyed by an earthquake in 1692. And even after 1692, it's Importance remains for a few decades, really, until the 1730s. Um, and in the aftermath of the 1692 earthquake, Kingston, Jamaica, is founded. But Port Royal sits on the edge of this, or sits at the tip of this very sandy peninsula that juts out from, on the southern from the southern part of the Jamaican mainland. And that peninsula creates a giant natural harbor. It's something like the seventh largest natural harbor in the world. And this sandy peninsula is, like I said, sandy. It's not really terra firma, so there's not much agricultural land there, but it becomes incredibly densely populated. It's where Henry Morgan often goes to after his raids on the Spanish Main. It becomes this ruckus place for for pirates and um, other kind of swashbucklers of the Atlantic world prior to 1692. And so it becomes this um, it's almost like the San Francisco, right, of of early modern Jamaica, because so many people are crammed into this tiny peninsula. They just start building upwards, right, by the 16th. 90s, 1680s. There are about 6,000 people uh, that live in Port Royal, Jamaica and are using it as this base for maritime operations um, and also as kind of the primary port for Jamaica. So the colonists that are living on mainland Jamaica um, will travel out to Port Royal and and bring whatever goods they're going to sell to an Atlantic market and load those onto ships there.
0: So where does the turtle come into this story? Why do turtles become such an important part of uh, Port Royal and the Jamaican economy in this period?
1: Sure. So since Port Royal, like I said, doesn't have a lot of agricultural land, they have to import a lot of their food. Granted, they're importing some of it from Jamaica itself, but they do have to ply the what becomes the Kingston Harbor, but prior to 1692 is known as the Port Royal Harbor, to bring that food to them. They also import food from the hinterlands that are the continental colonies. But they soon realize right, that they have a local food source that seems abundant to them that they can supplement these calories with. And those are turtles. And so, um, turtlers from Port Royal, Jamaica will go scour nearby waterways for the green turtle. The green turtle, hands down, was the most esteemed of all of the turtles that are plying the waters and. um... In the Caribbean, it's known to be quote unquote very good victual and they can very easily capture a green turtle. All you need to do is find a green turtle that is laying its eggs um, on a nearby beach. If you flip that turtle over onto the back. Um, onto its shell it is physically impossible for that turtle to flip itself back over so then they will take those turtles and load them onto ships and bring them back to port royal where they've established these things called turtle crawls which are essentially kind of subterranean fences um, that can contain a turtle a live turtle until it's going to be sent to market and then they would send those turtles to market butcher them and sell turtle meat to the people of port royal
0: so one of the sources that you quote in your article suggests something like that the turtle is a is a delicacy uh, that it's a fine meat, and so immediately we, we begin to conjure ideas of caviar, or escargot, or these 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 treats that we, I mean, I sure as heck don't, but you know people who can afford such things um, you know, have access to uh, from time to time, and so that it, it applies that it's a kind of meat reserved for. The high class, but what you make clear from your article is actually no. It's it's more of the middling and the poor man's meat.
1: Absolutely right. This is a meat that in the Caribbean is widely available, and the green turtle grows to a rather large size. Right on average, the adult green turtle weighs two hundred and fifty pounds, and the the majority of that is this fatty, edible meat, and so. It becomes really the staple of the the diet, in especially in Jamaica. The Cayman Islands, which are these islands north of Jamaica, are known to be these turtle hunts because turtles tend to, or they, they return to the same island where they are hatched to lay their eggs. And so many turtles have been born on the Cayman Islands that every year thousands of turtles would return to the Cayman Islands to lay their own eggs. And so people would quite literally return to Port Royal with thousands of pounds of turtle meat and hundreds of thousands of calories as a result. So it very much was this this food, at least in the circum-Caribbean, that people ate on a regular basis. It was cheap, it was easy to acquire, and it was an easy source of calories.
0: And so Jamaica has an extremely large slave population. You know They outnumber white population by orders of magnitude and so are is turtle meat being used to power the slave economy on Jamaica
1: so the enslaved population of Jamaica really takes off in the 18th century and the majority of my research is in the 17th century that being said in the 18th century Turtle remains a staple of the economy. And for enslaved people that are living in Kingston, that are living in the what is then the main city of Jamaica, it would be a staple. Um, for those that are living in the plantation hinterlands, they would rely on their own um, uh, provision plots for, to supplement the food that their enslavers are giving them.
0: Ah, I see. So unlike St. Lucia, where the Barbadians were unsuccessful in establishing a permanent settlement, there, the Jamaicans actually do establish permanent settlements in the Cayman Islands. And so why are they successful in the ways that the Barbadians were not? And what is Jamaica's relationship with the Cayman Islands look like?
1: That's a great question. So Jamaicans, like you said, are successful in settling. And what they end up doing is going over to the Cayman Islands and laying claim to it and actually going back to Jamaica and... Um, validating those claims in Jamaican courts. And um, the Jamaican government quite literally kind of starts recognizing Jamaican claims to these islands. And part of the reason is that these islands aren't, they're not really useful for agriculture. St. Lucia has tons of potential to be a sugar producing island. The Caymans are very low lying. They're very sandy. They have some groves of trees, but they're not going to be islands that are going to succeed in um, widespread sugar production. And so the the Jamaicans are going to incorporate these small islands that aren't necessarily going to have any value outside of a relationship with a larger island into kind of their, their worldview. They'll start sending people over there they will become they will create this resident population of the cayman islands and the cayman islands are going to remain a dependency of jamaica very much connected to jamaica for as long as jamaica is part of the british empire until the mid 20th century right so this relationship is going to last for centuries
0: didn't i read that right where you said that jamaica and the cayman islands don't actually end their formal legal relationship until something like 1962
1: Yes, and that's when Jamaica gains its independence from the British Empire. Wow. So that's what that date refers to.
0: That's pretty amazing. Well, before I let you go and we move on uh, to close by talking about what you're working on now, I do want to ask you about the ways in which people used turtles as a gift or the ways in which turtles were involved in gift giving. And can you give us a sense about how peoples in the 17th and maybe the early 18th century were using turtles as a kind of gift?
1: Sure. So I am working on an article that is all about turtles is as, as patronage, right? Gifting turtles as this act of patronage in the Atlantic world. And while turtles were this staple for people that lived in the British Caribbean, um, as people traveled throughout the Atlantic world, as they traveled throughout the British Empire, uh, there were people who lived in London that traveled to Jamaica and all of a sudden tasted turtle and thought, "Wow, this tastes really good. I would love to be able to eat this in London." And so gradually, people started trying to transport turtles across the Atlantic Ocean. They would put them in the hulls of ships. They would task um, uh, ship captains with caring for these turtles um, and asking them to feed them occasionally and continue to douse them with salt water every few days to make sure that they were comfortable. And then when they would arrive in London, people would give them to people as gifts and those who received a turtle would host a, like a turtle frolic, or sometimes it was just called a turtle, um, where they would invite their friends and carouse with them, and it was this act of sociability that was very much showing off one's connections to the Caribbean, right? This region that was associated with incredible wealth and with sugar, um, and it became these these, uh, these they became these events that were advertised in newspapers, and so that's happening in London, and it's also happening in the American colonies and than the United States. So George Washington, for example, during the American Revolutionary War, he sent several turtles from his adoring fans. People are like, here, General Washington, please take this turtle as a token of my gratitude. I hope it satisfies you. He also ends up a tur- uh, attending a, a turtle feast. Um, and the turtle is giving t- given to him by the gentlemen of Alexandria, right? So these The gifting of turtles and then the eating of turtles at these feasts and frolics was very much this way of showing one's status, right? Showing that one had the ability to acquire a turtle from an exotic place, a rich place like the Caribbean.
0: It's a really amazing example about how something that becomes a staple food for the majority of the population on an island like Jamaica then becomes a symbol symbol of opulence and social status and prestige, as you say, even to the extent that during the war, people are giving turtles to George Washington um, or attending, he's attending a turtle ball and a turtle feast in his honor.
1: Yeah. Another one of my favorite stories from the era of the American Revolution is there are some privateers that end up capturing a ship that had, was bound from Jamaica to London. And according to the newspaper article... There are three turtles that are found in the hull of the ship, and one of the turtles has Lord North's name carved into the shell. And so the privateers say that they're going to give this turtle that was supposed to be given to Lord North to John Hancock. <laughs> <Later>.
0: <laughs> so they, they give it from the prime minister to the Great Britain to the president of the Continental Congress.
1: Exactly.
0: That's I mean – that's it. That's an entirely different form of John Hancock right there, isn't it?
1: Yes. So and it's funny, too, because so you would think that people that live in the Caribbean have a tendency uh, or American colonists, those that live in the 13 colonies have a tendency to dismiss people that live in the Caribbean as these kind of debaucherous, um, lazy, especially uh, those uh, white residents of the Caribbean lazy colonists that they don't want to be like, they don't want to emulate, right? Americans in the 13 colonies don't want to be called Creoles, yet here they are very much embracing this staple of the Anglo-Caribbean diet. And I found multiple instances of July 4th celebrations incorporating like turtle feast and turtle soup. So it's really interesting that they're appropriating this mainstay of the, the loyal part of the empire, into this new national kind of um, tradition of celebrating independence.
0: Well, I think I and probably all of our listeners are really excited uh, to read that article when you get it done because um, it's fascinating stuff. And it, it sort of does, as you rightly say, unsettles our notion about uh, how the colonists see themselves or how they're trying to project a sense of identity vis-a-vis against, say, the British or uh, people in the Caribbean and whatnot. Well, is there you know you're working on that right now? Is there anything else you've got going on that you uh, that that excites you at the moment?
1: I'm working on the book manuscript, so uh, environmental history of the British Caribbean. Um, so that's my main task at the moment, and I hope to finish it sometime in the next few years.
0: <laughs> well, we wish you the best of luck, and Mary, uh, thanks very much for joining us, especially. Uh, as you're wheeling and dealing down there in Texas. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the program soon and stay safe.
1: Thanks, Jim. Thanks so much for having me and you too.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.